today we're, we're just going to look at uh, three verses. We're looking at uh, a prayer of Paul, uh, but very telling, uh, very huge. Uh, but I want to start by just kind of painting a picture for you. So uh, this is, I know you're going to be really jealous when you see this, but um, so this was, uh, this is a 1995 uh, Plymouth Grand Voyager, I think is what it was. Yes, yes. And uh, <laughs> it's a bottom of the line. Uh, we bought this back in uh, 95, my wife and I did. Uh, we had uh, a two-year-old and a newborn, and we were spending a lot of time at OHSU Hospital and getting our kids in and out of a Taurus that barely ran wasn't good, so we decided to splurge and really step up. And so we got this minivan. I felt like, it just felt like a man-dad at that point, driving this thing around. It was awesome. Now, no, no real options had crank windows on it. They said it had that really sweet spoiler on the front, which made me feel really good and hip. And, and so we drove that van. We drove that van. For those of you who are, are parents and have raised kids, you know, we, we, there was like... Uh, goldfish and um, the crackers and gummy bears just covering every inch of that floor. And so it's, it's 13 years later, we've been just driving this van into the ground. And, uh, and so we're living the dream now because we're, now we're a two minivan family. Like I'm loving, my wife drives uh, a new minivan. I'm driving this one to get around. And so this is my vehicle for a while. And, and uh, it kind of, by this point, um, by 13 years old, the air conditioning wasn't working anymore, which is okay because you only need it like two days a year. Um, <clears throat> but the heater didn't work very well. In fact, I could tell you exactly when the heater start, starts working, it, was, it would be at 190 seconds. So you'd, if I left my house by the high school, it would take till I was at 190 seconds before the heater got warm. Um, by this point, it's running on um, five cylinders. It was designed for six. It's running on five. I don't know if that makes it more fuel efficient. I, ha I have no idea. Uh, the only thing I know is it didn't like to back up with uh, five cylinders. And so we always have this thing where I'd be in a parking lot, and um, when I'd go to back out, so you know how in, when you're in a parking lot, everyone's always in a hurry, and they want to get through, and I'd go to back out, and so we'd always do this thing. When I put it in reverse, it would just shake violently, and then it would pass out. You know, just that's what it would do. And then I'd have to start it and it'd go a little farther and it'd pass out. Meanwhile, you know, like people are in the parking lot and they're like, come on and let's get out of here. And so it would do that. And then the, eventually the transmission um, wouldn't let me go over 20 to 25 miles an hour. Like that was it. And at that point it would just say, stop, you know, don't, don't go any faster. And then I had this other thing, which was even funner. Just people around me would love it. Um, when I'd come to a stop sign, when I'd come to a stop and I'd hit the gas, it would take anywhere from, it, depending on how it felt that day, three to eight seconds before it would start moving. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, it's not that you'd hit the gas and it'd wind up and then you'd slowly go. It, you'd hit the gas and it wouldn't go and it wouldn't go and then bam, it would just go. It would be like the G-forces. It would be like going from zero to 25 in like 50 seconds. It would just throw you back in the seat. It was crazy. But the best part was my kids loved it. And so, you know, they would, if I'd be like, hey, I'm going to go down to Safeway. Anyone want to go? Everybody would be like, yeah, we want to go. And they'd sit in the car and they'd pray for a red light you know, and they'd come to red light, and they'd be like, oh, and they'd do the, oh, boom, and it hit, and it just, like, it was a big hit, super fun, 
But I was, I got so used to living with the honk a second thing, right? So like there's a second and a nanosecond and a honk a second, right? Which is even short. That's the amount of time it takes between a green light and the person in the back of you honking because you're not moving. And I got super used to the honk a second. Everyone would honk at me. In fact, it was weird when I got a new car, nobody honked anymore. I didn't know what that was about. But I couldn't, I couldn't drive to Vancouver. I couldn't drive to Portland uh, because it would only go 20 to 25 miles an hour. So now it's 13 years old. It's, it's kind of at the end of its lifespan. I'm not about to spend money on a new transi- uh, transmission, so um, we're going to trade it in. We're going to get another car. We're going to trade it in. And we're over in Gresham, and the guy says, hey, look, I'll, here's the deal. Uh, you know, because I like you, <laughs> I'll give you a couple thousand dollars for your car. Here's the deal. You have to get it here in its own power. That's the deal. You can't, if you tow it in, if, you, if it's being pulled in, you don't get anything. You only get the money if it comes in in its own power. So I go home and I tell my kids, hey, I'm going to Gresham in the white van. Anyone want to come? Right? And everyone's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, we're going to Gresham. So my oldest, Chris, he's like, I'm, I'm all in, man. I'm, if I'm riding shotgun. So we get in the car and I'm like, so Chris, have you ever heard somebody honk at you? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, you, you've not heard what you're about to hear, right? So we're going we're gonna to drive. I'm just imagining going across a 205 bridge. So we get, we get in the car. We drive down to the 14. We get on the 14, and we're just driving down. I'm just, you know, just praying, oh, no, don't, don't let there be a semi. Don't let there. And we're just driving down, driving 20, 25 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, we get down to where, I don't know, there's probably only 50 cars in back of us. And all of a sudden, the van makes a noise and boom, just goes right up to 55, no problem at all. So we, we drive all the way to Gresham and I pull it in and I park it and give the guy the keys and a few minutes later, one of the guys that work in there comes and goes to move it and it won't start. And it won't, it won't jump, it won't do anything, right? And I'm like, hey man, I got it here in its own power, right? You gotta give it... But I tell you that story because um, it's always made me think, right? When you get a vehicle, you get a vehicle to get you to the places you need to go. There are places, you know, maybe it's work, maybe it's school, wherever it is, you need it to get you to your destination. I've always thought about how that vehicle for me is kind of like a metaphor for life because I think many times in life, we want to reach a destination. Now, I'm not talking about a physical destination at this point. I'm talking about a soul destination. I think that for many of us, um, whether we really understand or not, I think for many of us, we want to become a spiritually mature person. It is a destination that we want to get to, even if we can't quite explain it to you. What I mean is this. When we see spiritual maturity in other people, it can be so compelling. There is something about a a spiritual maturity in a person that brings up a passion that I think many of us, when we see it, And we may not know exactly what it is, but it's so compelling to us. We would love to have that kind of compassion and that kind of passion in life that gets us up in the morning and gives us purpose. People who are spiritually mature have a clarity about life. Their ability to just see the real issues in life. Their knowledge of scripture and what's true. Um, The kinds of relationships that spiritual maturity produces. Have you noticed that? And oftentimes we'll see people who have these amazing relationships and we'll think, that's what I want. I want that in my life. But they have it as a result of the spiritual maturity that they have. Their wisdom for making daily decisions. I mean, how many times have have you been making a decision and thought, I wish I I could make a decision like he does, like like she does. 
How do you get there? It's spiritual maturity, the, the peace that spiritually mature people have when life is going hard, the joy they can have in the midst of difficulties, the way it impacts their, the, where they work and their attitude. And even in here, even in here when we worship, sometimes you see people and you think, I wish I was like that. I wish I could worship like that. But how do we get there? How do we get to spiritual maturity? What, what vehicle gets us there? And today, Paul's going to answer that for us in, a, in maybe an unexpected way, and he's going to do it through a prayer. And I want to read the prayer for you. It's the entire prayer. It's uh, three verses, and then we'll, we'll break this down. Paul says this. It, just one sentence. A little bit of a run on here. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now the passage can look a little complicated, uh, 55 words in one sentence, but actually the passage is, is very focused. It's very pointed. Let me ask you this question. When you, when you pray for yourself, you probably pray when you get up in the morning, you probably pray in the middle of the day. When you pray for yourself, when you pray for other people, around you, what do you pray for? What do you pray for most of the time? Maybe you pray for your daily bread, that's a good thing, scripture encourages that. Maybe you pray for forgiveness, which again is a, a good thing to do. Uh, maybe you pray for God to take away a problem, you, you don't like it, God take it away. Maybe you pray for health and wealth and maybe comfort. Sometimes we pray for the easy path in life. Here's what Paul prayed. I mean, when you break it all down, here's what Paul prayed. That the believers that he knew would have more love and more love and more love and more love. Paul prayed that they would have more love. And the thing I want you to know this weekend, in this series we're talking about something to know and something to do every weekend. Something to know is this, that a God-supplied, God-informed love is the foundation of true spiritual maturity. In fact, not only is it the foundation, but we could say it is the measure. How do you measure a truly spiritual person. And what we're going to find out in scripture is it's measured by love, but not just any love. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I, I, I pray this morning that you will open our hearts and minds to hear the truth that you have for us that we so desperately need. So tune our hearts now to your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. So Paul's going to break this down for us as we kind of think, how do we get to this place of spiritual maturity? First thing I want you to notice, and it's in your notes, is this. Paul's going to tell us that divine love is dynamic. It's, so it's not static, it's dynamic. And by dynamic, he puts it this way in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may, a couple of important words, that it may abound more and more. So Here's something we know about the Philippian church. These are a, a group of believers in Philippi, and we know that these are people that were already loving people. So Paul's not writing to a bunch of jerks who are mean-spirited. He's writing to people who are loving and who are spiritual. And Paul says to these spiritual-loving people, I'm actually praying that you have more love, and I'm praying that the love of God in you grows even more and more, and it never stops. Now scholars will say that the interesting thing about this, this verse here is that the word love 
has no object in the Greek. In other words, he doesn't say love God and he doesn't say love others because he's, he's kind of digging down a little bit deeper here when he talks about love. When Jesus was asked, um, what is the most important of the Old Testament commandments? And it was kind of a trick question because the thinking was you, you really can't just narrow it down to one. But a guy one time asked Jesus that and you may recall his answer. He said this, here's the most important command in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God. So here's where it starts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. Now, Scholars will point out that um, he's not really saying, here's a first one and then here's, here's option two. What he's really saying is that the second one is, is part of it. It's like the other side of the coin. They go together and we see this in scripture a lot that says that you cannot have one without the other. So, so they go together and here's the second part. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law all the prophets. So, so the end game of the Old Testament, if you will here, as Jesus puts it, is that we would be those who would receive the love of God through faith. And we talk about that. We, when we come to Christ in faith, we receive all sorts of things, but one of the things we receive is the love of God. And then once we receive the love of God, that we would share the love of God. So another way people like to put it is it's about a, a vertical love between us and God, and a horizontal love between us and the people around us. And with God, it kind of goes both ways. God sends love down to us, right? Because without that, we have no love. So it comes down from God, and then we give it back to God, and we give it out to the people around us. But God is the source of this, of this genuine love. And 1 John 4, 7 tells us this, Beloved, let us, let us love one another. Notice what he says here. For love is from who? It's from God. It comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so God is a source of love. And, and this is what Paul's saying here. And he says, it's my prayer that your love may abound. Now that word abound is a great word. It means to have an abundance of something, to have uh, uh, enough, to have excess, uh, to have enough to give away to the people around you. So Paul is praying that God's love in us would fill us up and would overflow. And it would overflow back to God, so we'd give back to God love that he's given to us. And we would give it freely and generously, and we would also give it to the people around us. Now, I don't know if you've ever wished that you had a heart that had more love, um, that maybe your thoughts were more loving. Maybe there are times when your thoughts are not loving, or your thoughts are kind of other things, and you've thought, I wish I could just have thoughts that were more loving, or... or, or actions or motivations. I just wish that love was my very nature. And what Paul says here is God's love in you is dynamic. It can, it can grow. It can increase. And in fact, it, it needs to. And of course, we pray for a lot of really important things for other people in our world. But this ought to be at the top of our list, that the people around us would have more and more love, that, you, that we pray that for our spouse, that we would pray that for our kids, that we pray that for our friends and the people in our grow group and also for us. That we wouldn't just have the love of God, but that we would have a dynamic love, a love that's growing, that there's more and more of it. But it's not just any love here that Paul talks about. Um, the second thing I want you to notice is this, that, that what Paul's gonna say is that divine love is, in fact, if I had more room, I would have put divine love is divinely informed. Okay, it's informed um, from God himself. So, so Paul isn't 
praying here. You know, I just pray we all just love love. You know, just all go out and, and come up with our own love and our own definition. And, you know, we'll just kind of form a circle and have flowers in our hair if we had hair and that kind of thing. And we'll sing Kumbaya. And, you know, all you need is love, however you define it, as long as you're sincere. Right? That's a big thing in our world today, as long as you're sincere. You know, a lot of really horrific, terrible things have done by completely sincere people. Since when is sincerity the mark of true love? Now, when the Bible says that God is love, what the Bible means is that God is both the source of love and the standard of love. So these are two really important things. He is both the source of love and he is the standard of love. What this means is that love is what God says it is because God is love and he is the, the, the definition of love. And so here's what Paul says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And, and notice the qualifiers here. What kind of love? Love with knowledge and love with discernment. So this is, this is huge. A knowledge of God is what he's talking about. A knowledge of God that comes from God. Now that's very different than the world that we live in today. Uh, driving down the road the other day, listening to an interview on the radio to some lady talking about, uh, talking about truth. She, and she made the statement. She said, you know, um, my truth is my truth. And, and your truth is your truth. But you can't tell me what my truth is because my truth is what's true for me. So, and it, the discussion came up because the person interviewing them said, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> like, what you're saying doesn't sound right. And the response was, oh, well, you can't say that because it's true for me. Right, so, you know, there's what's true for you and there's what's true for me. And you can't evaluate what I say is true for me because it's true for me. And you can't argue with what I say is true for me. Now, of course, anyone can realize how quickly that breaks down. You can't have seven billion truths in the world. What you end up with is, well, you end up with our world. <laughs> what you end up with when you have seven billion truths. And this is what you get today. So it's very important for us to understand that this is not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about when he talks about love and what Paul is talking about when he talks about love is that God is both the source of love and the standard of love. There is a standard. It doesn't matter what you call it. Right? There is a standard. In John 17, Jesus is praying for all future believers, including you and me, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And part of the prayer is this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. So he's praying for you. Sanctify them in the truth. And he says to God, your word is truth. Now the word sanctify is a very rich word. It has, a, it, it has kind of both a, a set in time meaning and an ongoing meaning. The set in time meaning is this. He's, he's praying, God, make them holy. So we, we talk about this a lot, but there is a sense in which you are already holy. Uh, we talked in the beginning about uh, the idea of being a saint, that every one of you who have placed your faith in Christ are a saint in God's eyes. That is, you are set apart for God. God is, has sanctified you. You are holy in his sight, but God is also sanctifying you. Right? That, that it's, a, it's a process that you're undergoing in, in your life. And, and the Bible is God's self-revelation to you. It's his, it's his revelation of who he is and, and, and what he's like so that we can understand God. And the problem is this, that, that biblical ignorance can impair our understanding of God. So let me say this really carefully. When we are biblically ignorant, 
It can impair our understanding of who God is and, and what God is like, and it can rob us of a rich and vibrant relationship with God. And I say this because sometimes I'll have Christians who say, well, I just want to know God, and I just want to sing to God, and I don't, wanna, I, don't, you know, I don't need to be a scholar, and I don't need to go to Bible college and all this kind of stuff. And there's kind of a tension there because there can be an ignorance that comes in a way when we lack knowledge that affects our understanding and our relationship with God. Ignorance leads to all sorts of heretical thinking about God. It leads to things like, you know, well, God is distant. I hear this a lot of times, that we, we need to co- invite God into our service today. We need to invite God in. That's ridiculous. God was here before you got here this morning. God was waiting for you. He's like, when are they going to be here, right? God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. It leads to things like, well, God is just a policeman up in heaven just waiting to write us tickets for all the sins that we commit. You know, it leads to things like, you know, God is uncompassionate. God is hate. Uh, it leads to like, God is just, God is just a, like a grandfather who just wants to give candy out to everyone. You know, he doesn't judge anyone. He doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't do any of this stuff. Folks, a biblically ignorant believer is missing out on so much, so much. I want to read for you a quote I came across this week. This is from Frank Sheed, who is a um, Catholic theologian. So I don't quote Catholic theologians a lot. In fact, I don't think I've quoted one in 25 years. So uh, here we go. This is a good one, though. So I'm going to read it through, put it on the screen. But I, I thought he makes a great point. Here we go. A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. So let's just start to kind of parse this out. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. That make sense? Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more for knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. That's a powerful thought. That, that the more we know of God, of his self-revelation to us, the more reasons we will have to love him. The more reason we will have to be in awe of him. You know, we won't need an experience to make us feel awe toward God. We won't need a song. We won't need a sermon. We won't need an experience. We will be in awe of God because of what we know about him. The more we will want to praise God, the more you won't be able to shut us up in praising God. The more we will want to obey God. That's what scripture says. And so many times I see people who are like, oh, you know, this whole obedience thing. If you really knew God, that would just not be an issue for you. You would want to do that. The more peace we would have in difficult circumstances because our peace would be rooted in God, the deeper our fellowship would be. The more we would tell other people about Christ, it just wouldn't be an issue. It would be natural for us. And so Paul talks about this this love that is rooted in, in knowledge and discernment. That's the other word here. Now the word discernment means perception, means judgment, it means just practical insight for living. So I love this idea, there's the knowledge of God and then there's just this, how it applies to our lives. Folks, true love, true love is not blind. Okay, that's ridiculous. True love is not ignorant. True love is discerning. True love is discriminating. It means that you are not naive. True love means that you are not gullible. 
It means that you know the difference between better and best, not just right and wrong. Not everything that you read on the internet is true. I'm going to give you a couple of pearls of wisdom here, okay? Not everything you read on the internet is true. How are you going to tell the difference between what's true and what is not? Not every opinion that you read on Facebook is truth. I read, in fact, most of them aren't, right? Not everyone who is sincere speaks the truth. Not everyone who says they have your best interests at heart are telling the truth. Right? Not every email that you receive from someone in Nigeria who has $10 million for you is actually true. Just here's a freebie. Don't give them your account information, all right? Discerning what is true is so hard for us. Why? Well, one is because we're not naturally wise. We're naturally foolish. And the second is because we live in a cesspool of lies. And this is why we need discerning truth. In Psalm 119, the psalmist has some great words here. He says this, he's speaking to God and he says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me. Now you just kind of have to understand when he says they are ever with me, what he's saying is I memorize them. Because the psalmist doesn't have the Bible on his iPhone to carry around. So the only way that this can really be true is he's got to have it memorized. So he says, I memorize your word, God, and it makes me wise. Everywhere I go, it's just influencing my thoughts. I have more insight than all my teachers. Right? That's pretty smart. Wouldn't most of us like to be smarter than our teachers? He says, I'm wiser than my teachers because I meditate on your statutes. So I don't just read them, I think about them. I, I ponder them. I mull over them. I have more understanding than my elders, people that are older than me, because I obey your precepts. In other words, what he's saying is wisdom and discernment isn't based on your age or your position or your status or your education. It's based on the position that you give the Word of God in your life. So I just uh, finished last week rebuilding uh, my deck. Uh, I got tired of refinishing it every couple of years, and so I, uh, I decided to kind of fit it out with tracks, and it took me a whole lot of time to do, but I want to show you, I know you probably can't see it, but I'm pointing right there to the most important tool that I used when I was rebuilding my deck, and that was my tape measure. So my tape measure was the tool that I used more than anything, more than the chop saw, more than anything. Um, and so I would, I would use it, and basically, so my son Chris helped me with the deck, and he could tell you I had this ritual, right? So um, we're using 20-foot boards, and most of the cuts that we needed were about 20 feet, one-half inch. The boards came in at about 20 feet, one inch, so I'd have to cut about a half an inch off. So I'd get on one end of the deck, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd put the tape measure across, and figure out what it is, and then I'd do it the other way, and Chris would tell me what it was, you know, and then we'd make sure it was, if it wasn't the same, we'd do it again, and then we'd note it, and then we'd go get a 20-foot piece of wood, we'd put it uh, up on the chop saw, I'd measure it, so now if you've ever done this, you'll know what I'm talking about at this point, so I'd measure it, I'd put the square on, I'd mark it, and then I'd measure it again so I could tell if the pencil mark, you know, if it needed to be cut on the inside or the outside or right on, and then I'd cut it, and then I'd measure it again, you know, just, and sometimes when I measured again, I think, what in the world was I, what was I doing when I did that? I didn't always get it right. And here's the reason that I have to use a, a tape measure all the time, because I am terrible at discerning the length of anything. I have no idea. I need a standard to tell me what a real inch looks like, what a foot looks like, what a yard looks like, what 20 feet looks like. I needed a standard. And this is what God's word for us is. It is a standard, it's a, it's a measuring tape, if you will, of what's true. So you look at something, and you're like, how do I know that that's true? Well, you take the word of God and you put it up to it. 
Does it measure up? Is it what God has said? God's word is our standard of truth for our assessments and our decisions, and all these are to be based on it. God-revealed knowledge grows our discernment and it safeguards our love. It teaches us what it really means to love people and to love God. And this is why we must live with our Bibles open. We must read it, study it, pray it, meditate on it. And so this is what Paul says. What you really need, what you, what I really need is more and more love that is informed divinely and that is, that is wise. And then Paul just kind of says, and here's, by the way, what you get. So here's what you get when you are growing in love. What does that do in your life? And so he mentions a few things. He says this, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Or the NIV puts it this way, so that you will be able to discern what is best. This is not about, at this point, Paul's not talking about knowing the difference between right and wrong. Or we've already gone past that point. Paul's aiming for something higher. At this point, what Paul's talking about is that we would be able to tell the difference between what's good and what's best. Okay, so that, that's, that's living life at a whole different level. Many of us just, we, we go through life where like, I just want to know the difference between right and wrong. That's all I want to know. I just don't want to tick God off. I want to get, keep my head down and get to heaven. And what Paul says is, man, is that really all you want to do in life? Wouldn't it be great if you could tell the difference between what's better and what's best? This is what we need. And life requires constant discernment on our part. So I'll see if I can explain it this way. A lot of us want discernment and we want to apply discernment when it comes to the big things in life. Yeah. Uh, what college should I attend? Right. We want God to help us there. I, I can't tell you how many students I know that it hasn't occurred to them for the last 15 years um, how to apply discernment to their education, but suddenly it becomes very important when they have to pick a college. Or who should I marry? Or, or what career should I pursue? Or what house should I buy? How, how big should my mortgage be? Uh, how should I budget my paycheck? And many of us in life, we wait until we're making those big decisions to apply discernment. But what I've found is this. As a pastor, uh, even being here for 25 years, what I've discovered is this, that oftentimes it's the little things. It's the little things in life that really deserve the discernment. Because if we don't make the small decisions wisely, we may not have the big decisions to make at all. Right? Isn't that true? If we're not wise. So, for instance, instead of just saying, I'm going to wait until I've got to decide on a college to pray for discernment, maybe, maybe tonight, if you're a student and you're trying to decide, should I do my homework or, you know, binge on Netflix? Right? There's a place where you might, and again, it's easy to think, yeah, but it's just one hour. Yeah, and, and it's not. It's not. Because we are setting a pattern. If you, if you are unwise long enough, you won't have a big decision to make, will you? You won't have a lot of options there for you because you weren't wise in the small decisions. Where a lot of people are already praying, young people are already praying about the person they'll marry, they pray a lot less about, for instance, the person they go on a first date with. But for those of us who have been around for a while, we know that that first date is extremely important because it is setting a trajectory 
for our life. We need to show wisdom in that. For many of us, we don't realize that it's just the thoughts we choose to dwell on as we go to sleep or as we're driving down the road. It's how we choose to think about someone. You know, I tell you, it's, it feels like one of the biggest conversations that I have with adults, with full-grown adults who should know better, are people who come to me and say, I'm so mad at someone, I'm so angry at someone, they did this to me, they said this to me, and I'm so angry at them, and, and, and I, I oftentimes I just tell people like, well, that's just dumb, you know? Why, why are you letting what they did to you determine how you think about them? See, we need to grow up. We need to grow, a grown-up does this. A grown-up says, I, what, I don't care what you did to me, I don't care what you said to me, I'm going to think about you the way Christ does. I'm gonna let that determine my thoughts. Right, because in the end you understand, I know we, we talked about this last week and the week before, but, but how you think about people is always your choice. We need to show some discernment. The next website I click on, how I spend the next $10, how I spend the next hour of free time, they may seem like small decisions. Do I get a dog or a cat? That's an easy one, you know. But these things all add up. We need discernment in all of them. This is where discernment is vital because it's not just about what's right and wrong. We want to live life better than that, don't we? Than just right and wrong? This is it's about the grayer. Is this between what's better and what's best? This is about choosing between merely getting by spiritually and living a life that glorifies God. Right? How many of us woke up this morning saying, you know what, my goal this morning is just to get by. I just don't want to tick off God today. That's all I really care about. How many of you woke up this morning and said, my goal today is to glorify God with my life. Right? That's, that's the difference between better and best. Yeah, uh, between not merely sinning against someone. So my goal today is not to sin against my wife, to sin against my kids, to sin against my parents. That's much different than going, my goal today is to completely bless them. Right, that's completely different. That's, that's the difference between better and, and best. Right? Between having a civil conversation with someone, I just don't want to get in an argument with them today. That's my goal. Right? As opposed to, I want to talk about Jesus today. See, a God-informed and discerning love allows us to live life at the highest level, not just a bare minimum, not just getting by. And Paul has some other benefits here. He talks about purity. He says, and so be pure and blameless. That word pure simply means unmixed. It has the idea of putting something out in the sunlight. You're, you're in a store, right, and you're looking for something, and you're like, is this cracked? Is this good? You take it outside and you put it in the sunlight. That's the idea. The idea here is that you and I have a pure heart, that what people see on the outside is what's on the inside, right? Have you ever thought, man, I'm such a hypocrite. I wish I wasn't a hypocrite. He says, here's how you get there. Love that is God-informed and discerning. One of the benefits is it makes you pure. It makes you blameless. That means without stumbling or offense, specifically in this passage, it means you don't cause other people to stumble and sin. And he says, for the day of Christ, so that Christian growth isn't just an end in itself. It, it has the grand goal of you one day standing before Jesus Christ. Hearing well done. And he says this, it is filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So it's, it's filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
It's filled with, with right actions. It's filled with, with right words. It's filled with stuff like Galatians says that, that when we're walking with God, the Spirit produces things in us like love and joy and peace and patience. Now, that sounds like a pretty good list, doesn't it? Of things in your life. Anybody want more kindness? Uh, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness? Anybody for more self-control? He says, here's how, you, here's how you get there. And then he talks about the righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now, not everyone agrees with this statement that Paul makes, that righteousness comes through Christ, but we believe this. We believe in the doctrine of justification. What that teaches us is this. Uh, Martin Luther described it this way. He said, Christ made a great exchange for us. He took all of our, our sin, right? So it answers the question, how does, a, how does a sinner, how does a guilty sinner stand before God as righteous, as worthy of heaven? Well, it's through the work of Christ on the cross. This is the gospel. That, that Jesus Christ went to the cross, took all of our sin upon himself, took it up on the cross where he willingly suffered, bled, and died, paid the price for our sin. And when we place our faith in Christ, he offers us an exchange. He gives us his righteousness, his perfect life, and he takes our sin. This is, this is righteousness. This is justification. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.9. We'll, we'll get to Philippians 3.9 in, I don't know, next year. Uh, and we'll be, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, right? I can't deserve it. I can't earn it. But which comes through faith. That's when we believe in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And a lot of times we'll talk about two kinds of righteousness, the imputed righteousness and the imparted righteousness. Imputed kind of sounds weird, but it simply means that God legally uh, sees us as righteous. But imparted righteousness means that what God does is he gives us a new heart, a new nature. He changes us from the inside out. We have a new mission in life, new motivations, and our life produces a new kind of fruit. That's what Paul's talking about. To the glory and the praise of God. So as one writer put it, a tree that bears fruit is alive, but a tree that is filled with fruit glorifies the gardener. And I love that. So what kind of life do you want to live? A life that just, well, they're alive. Or a life when people see you, they're like, wow. <laughs> so that's different. That's like pointing to God. A life that glorifies God. And so, yes, you know, we ought to pray for our jobs. We ought to pray for our finances, our health, our grades, our friendships. But don't forget the more foundational thing, folks. To pray for a greater and greater love that is informed by God, that is sourced by God, that is filled with the truth of God, that's discerning, that knows the difference between not only right and wrong, but better and best, so that our lives will be, and this is the point, heavy with the fruit of righteousness, heavy with goodness, with the grace of God. This is how we should pray for ourselves. This is how we should pray for each other. So let's close with this. What are we gonna do? Well, I would like to suggest that you, for the next week, adopt a spiritual discipline. It could be one you're already doing but not doing very much, or it could be a new one for the purpose of growing and forming and applying, applying God's love to your world. What I mean is this. You need to get into the word of God. And so maybe reading the Bible is something you only do on Sunday. So here's just a good, here's a good idea. Maybe you would want to read the book of Philippians this week. And uh, in fact, it's only four chapters. It's almost too easy. Maybe you want to read the book of Philippians once a day. That would be good. Once a day, every day for the next seven days, and then you can come next week and preach a sermon because you'll be, you'll be ready for that. You could do that. 
to fill your thoughts, to fill your mind with the word of God. Maybe you might wanna memorize a passage this week uh, of scripture. Maybe you wanna set aside uh, half an hour. For some of us, that's a huge amount of time. The next seven days to just read the Bible and meditate on the word of God. Maybe you need to get in a Bible study. Maybe in a grow group. Maybe you need to Maybe you need to journal this week. Just sit down for the next seven days, give yourself 20 minutes and just write, just think about a passage of scripture and just write about it. Just write, let God speak to you because love is too important to neglect. You need it and you need more and more and more of it. And just, just imagine for a moment, imagine, imagine your life. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning with a heart that is just filled with more love for God and others than you've ever had before. Imagine that in your marriage. Imagine you and your spouse both being filled with an increasing amount of love for God. Imagine that in your family. Imagine that where you go to work or in your grow group. Imagine getting together with your grow group this week or in youth group, and everyone in the room has more love. Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine the conversations and the encouragement and the things that would happen there? God says, this is yours if you will take it. Take it. Let me pray for us.